0: The focus of this episode was a research project he was collaborating on with psychologist Anders Ericsson, And even if that name doesn't ring a bell, you're probably familiar with Ericsson's work, as he coined the term deliberate practice, spent his career researching what it is that enables people to develop world-class levels of expertise, and is the basis for books like The Talent Code and Talent is Overrated. We recorded this episode in early April, so you'll hear us speak of Ericsson in the present tense, but sadly, Anders passed away unexpectedly on June 17th, just a couple weeks ago. Ericsson's work has been incredibly influential and had a significant impact on the lives and careers of many musicians, teachers, athletes, coaches, and countless others. Jason recently wrote a tribute to Anders' lasting legacy and impact with a collection of thoughts from other musicians who have been touched by his work, which will give you a glimpse of just how meaningful a difference he made in many of our lives, whether we ever met him or not. You can read this at bit.ly slash Anders2020. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash A-N-D-E-R-S and the numbers 2020. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with Met Opera Orchestra Principal Timpanist Jason Hahn. In this month's conversation, you'll hear Jason talk about the importance of recording your lessons, listening back, and transcribing the lesson, and why exactly this will help you make significantly more progress from week to week, even though at first, it might feel like doing this takes too much time away from your practicing to be worth the time and effort. So one of the best talks I've ever heard was given by University of Texas professor Robert Duke. He said that in his days as a band teacher, he made his students earn practice time, meaning he didn't allow them to take their instruments home and practice until they could demonstrate to him that they could be trusted to practice in such a way that they didn't make things worse and undermine all the work they were doing in rehearsal. So only when they could prove that they knew what to do in the practice room? Did he start giving them permission to take their instruments home and spend maybe five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes practicing? So it became kind of a matter of pride that they had had the privilege of being able to practice for 10 minutes a day and so forth. I was doing some math this morning. And if you assume that one practices six days a week and you practice one hour per day, that would mean that you're spending 86% of your time on your own outside of supervision of your teacher. And then if you do two hours a day, it means you're spending 92% of your time on your own and three hours equals 95%, four hours equals 96% and so on. So even if you give a student the most amazing lesson ever, you could probably make a convincing argument that the quality of that student's practice between lessons might be as big a factor in their week to week progress as the lesson itself. And so even though lessons over Zoom may have some drawbacks, uh, when you and I were talking the other day, you mentioned that there's one Zoom feature in particular that potentially could change how students approach practice and maximize their progress in learning in the week between lessons. So not exactly sure where to start with this, but yeah, I wanted to dive into that a little bit more and and hear more of what your thoughts were.
1: Yeah, so we were having this conversation the other day where... It, it was sort of like looking at this incredibly insane moment that the world is dealing with right now and a, a kind of understanding how this is changing the way everybody, like not, not by choice, right? Everyone is forced into this new way of teaching and learning. A lot of students, I mean, everybody is now doing any kind of learning through this medium of virtual online teaching. Most of it is mediated through something like we're using right now, which is Zoom, or it could be Skype, or it could be a handful of other things. But in many or most of them, <laughs> the service itself gives the option to record. And I almost want to zoom out one other level because I think one of the things that I have been struggling with myself as the last few weeks have unfolded is that there is an asynchronous nature to this tragedy we're all experiencing, right? and that it's, it's weird on the one hand to have lessons and classes and various other things sort of trying to go about as usual, business as usual, while at the same time, like right now, Noah, you and I are in New York City and it feels like a war zone and it's absolutely insane. And I, I'm just going to be totally honest. Like it was just um, a day and a half ago that I found out that one of my colleagues in the Met orchestra died from COVID. And we're all reeling from that. And it's just awful. And it, and it sucks because we've known that's coming, right? And and so this this is, again, just kind of for, for myself and my students in the last few weeks, being able to frame this in a way that's saying, um, yeah, we are facing a radically uncertain future. It is entirely natural right now if you are a musician, any kind of instrumentalist, frankly, anybody that would be listening to this podcast to begin with, to be wondering how this is going to look to be scared at some of those prospects of how this is going to go down. Yeah, me too. But sort of my North star remains that the the process of deliberate practice and the real skills that go into that um, are going to have an increased currency. Maybe we should say on the other side of this, because it's everything that underlies the ability to be flexible and adaptable and learn how to learn and, and all of that. Which I think is the exact segue point I want to connect to what you introduced. Because when you are working with a teacher and you're taking lessons, yes, they are giving you feedback. But one of the other things that's happening is you are learning how to learn. You are learning how to teach yourself this specifically because your teacher is not observing every hour of your practice, right? The ratios you you broke down were absolutely right. That... If you're only doing one hour a day of practice and you're doing weekly lessons, the ratio is 7 to 1 or 14 to 1 or 21 to 1 or 28 to 1. In my case, by the time I started getting really serious about taking orchestra auditions myself, I was well out of school. And so the, the framework of having, you know, a weekly check-in lesson was not possible, really. You know, it, it, it wasn't practical. That's not kind of how things were going. And, you know, I was much more in the place where I was checking in with teachers every six or eight weeks, but doing most of the work on my own. So that ratio was something much closer to like, I was putting in four or five hours a day, six or seven days a week. If we just roughly say 30 hours a week, and I was doing six to eight weeks in between lesson sessions. I was accumulating 150, 180, 200 hours of practicing in there in between check-in times. And the thing I kind of arrived at realizing that like, hang on, I've, I've got to be better about practicing in that time. I've got to be more efficient. And uh, I, I remember at one point thinking about it like this canoe trip I took when I was in middle school. It was, it was a Boy Scout thing. And like for anyone who's been canoeing, You know, you kind of like you you paddle, 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 but also like if you're in a, a river or maybe you're on a lake and there's a strong wind, like you can start getting really easily blown off course. And the job of the person in the back of the canoe is to be the rudder and to like make sure you've got the heading so you know where you're going and you kind of keep aiming toward that. And then you paddle, 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 and then you kind of course correct again and then you paddle, paddle, paddle. So for me, like obviously the lessons were the course correction time. But it was really easy in the beginning too. like when I was first starting out with this, I would I would be practicing my ass off and put in again, 50, 80, 100 hours of practice time and then get back to the lesson and realize like, oh, man, I like ended up going 90 degrees off course. And now I'm on like the other bank of the lake in the wrong place. And My teacher's like, wait, what were you doing? No, no, that's not what I meant at all. You you weren't listening or you, like you didn't get it right. And, and to be Fair and clear, I also think that's totally natural because it is really difficult. I mean, I would argue impossible to get the full picture of the expertise that is being discussed, transferred, kind of thrown at you during lesson time, right? D- depending on the sort of relationship between the student and the teacher, the amount of expertise that that teacher has versus where the student is at is this like really asymmetric balance. I mean, I think about it too in, in some of the times where I was like studying a new foreign language. Like I remember taking Spanish, cl- Spanish classes when I was in high school. And, you know, for somebody who's fluent in Spanish, and then you try to go teach like this, you know, kid in a Minneapolis suburb, like, all right, here we go. Ground zero, right? And and build that up. It is from the teaching perspective, it's tough to remember what it feels like to be that green and you inevitably use words or phrases or concepts that make total sense to you and that the student has no frame of reference for even what you're talking about so there's a lot of issues kind of going on with this there's like how much how much can you catch on the first pass are you even capable of understanding what they're talking about does this need more time to marinate and then there's just simply the issue of like how quick can you write anything down And so the answer is no, not enough. And, and ineffectively, I would spend some of these early lessons trying to like take written notes, but I'd also then realize that I was missing something else they were saying as I was writing down the other thing, or I was writing something down and I would have to use some sort of like shortcut terminology that as I looked at it a week later, I'm like, wait, I don't even know what they were talking about. Or I totally didn't understand that concept, which is. All a long way of saying I got to a point where I just realized, like, wait a second, I I have got to go in and record this lesson. I'm just like my human brain is not capable of soaking this all up on the first try. Um, We're not built to do that. And I need subsequent passes with this material. And in my experience, because I had sort of already vetted all of the teachers I was working with to know that we were a good fit everybody that I asked, can I record this lesson said, oh yeah, of course, absolutely. I encourage you to do so. I think that's the responsible thing. I would maybe go a step further. I, I think I would say at this point in history, um, especially considering where we're at now in like the COVID learning environment, there is no legitimate excuse to not allow your students to record a lesson. I, I've been saying this out of classes for a couple of years and I've, I've basically for myself been increasingly adamant about this point i started saying like well you really should you know like it's a good idea but not all teachers are going to be comfortable with this and and i've just evolved to the point where i'm like no there's there's absolutely no good reason and i even think at this point it's a matter of of economics and ethics for how much students are paying for tuition they need to be able to extract maximum value from that time and i think if you are a teacher who is not allowing your students to record the lesson time that is bordering on on unethical teaching practice. Now, if you're one of the teachers listening to this and you disagree with me on that point, that's great. I have no problem. We can discuss this. Get in touch with me. Find me on my website. I will hash this out with you. I, I look forward to the conversation. If you're one of the students listening to this and you have asked your teacher and they have said no, I think that's a problem. I think that points to a lot of potential issues in that teaching philosophy and style, but I'm not gonna you know I'm not going to tell you to write that off entirely. I think what you should maybe do is think about how to butter them up. <laughs> and so I've had some conversations with students who've taken a lesson or two with me and then they need to go back to their primary teacher and they're like, yeah, you know I told them that Haheim was like, you should really record their lesson they're like, I don't do that." And I said, okay, well, tr- try this approach. appeal to their ego. basically go in there and say, Hey, you know, the reason I want to record is that I just so value everything you have to say. And it's so important and poor little me just can't, can't like absorb it all. And the thing is, I want to be one of those students who goes out and reflects really well on you and like succeeds. And so other students can see what what they're doing, but I'm going to be able to do that a lot more easily if I can like absorb all of your amazing wisdom. And like, so please let me record. And believe it or not, like I've had, you know, for most of the students that were rebuffed on the first try, the ego stroking approach usually kind of got in the door. That's the kind of first step of it, which is just making sure you have buy-in so that you can record the thing. I've also been talking for a long time now, I realize. So maybe I, there's, there's more I could say about it, but uh, it, it, you, there may be other things to clarify along the way. So feel free to jump in.
0: Well, this is not a question or or clarification necessarily, but it reminds me of Khan Academy. And uh, one of the things that I read about Khan Academy that people seem to like is that instead of having to raise your hand and stop class to ask a question, you can listen to the same concept again multiple times and kind of absorb it without interrupting the flow of things. And so... So in in a lesson, certainly you can stop and interrupt and and ask clarification questions. But still, like you said, sometimes it takes a while for things to to resonate or to make sense or to kind of click eventually.
1: This is also something that uh, you and I were talking about a a few weeks back that I've had this uh, collaboration ongoing with Anders Ericsson for the past uh, 18 months or so. And we've been looking for ways to take the existing field of deliberate practice research and kind of go to the next level with it and find the places where that's possible and where there's kind of some like low hanging fruit to go in a way beyond deliberate practice theory and actually start to get into some applications. I think we are in a way like poised for this revolution in music performance pedagogy. And it's a revolution that has happened in other fields. And like we can we can see how that went. And I think we're just on the cusp of it. And, you know, so to be more specific, like the application of rigorous, methodical, scientific method type approach to improving the thing started in the 90s in baseball, Major League Baseball, with the now well-known story of Billy Bean and the Oakland athletics. And Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball About It, and then it was turned into the movie with Brad Pitt. That was a whole thing where the field of Major League Baseball had been trading on this nonsensical notion of talent and like scouts that would see somebody playing and be like, you know, I just I like that guy's moxie or like, boy, the cut of his jib and he's going to be a great player. And it was all just like gut feeling and basically BS, right? Like and, and what Billy Bean did is come in and realize, oh, there are you know metrics you can look at for the way players perform. And if you want a good baseball team, you just need the right combination of metrics. And so I can go put together a team of essentially dramatically undervalued players that working together are going to be able to be much more effective where the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. And I I forget exactly the story, but, you know, they got to they won some division championship or something or, you know, got to the World Series. and, And, you know, it was it was more than they ever expected this kind of like ragtag group to be able to do. In the field of election forecasting, right, Nate Silver came on the scene in 2008 with 538, and it was the similar approach of like, okay, this isn't going to be just like gut feelings and, and punditry, but actually like a methodical database approach to this. And owing to a lot of the deliberate practice research, and that we're just, you know, sort of a countable number of years into that filtering in to music performance practice. I think on the one hand, it's like it's a really exciting time to be working on this stuff and and talking about it because there's just so much growth potential. What I was discussing with the music educators in Minnesota was my read on that was a lot of music educators, at least at the middle and high school level, have already gotten on board with the idea of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And this is great, right? And so, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, this is the Carol Dweck book. She's a psychologist, I forget where, but so she wrote this book called Mindset that was, um, you know, very much connected with the kind of founding principles of deliberate practice, which is that you're, you know, you're not born with a fixed potential or a fixed way to learn or a fixed anything. That principles like neuroplasticity enable you to learn and develop and grow and kind of shape your own potential. And so the music educators were already super on board with that. And that was great to see in here. And then I said, great. So, you know, the next step is like, how do we apply this? Like, how do you start getting your students to incorporate this new framework into their learning and teaching and what you're teaching and how they go about preparing for rehearsals and performances and all the time in the practice room and, and all of this stuff. Right. Kind of like back to my canoeing analogy. It's like, you got to capture that lesson time to begin with, just so that those intervening 7, 14, 28 hours are like truly as effective and smartly directed as it can be.
0: So, I want to ask about how to do it. Meaning, I mean, yes, you tape your lesson, you listen back, that part is straightforward, but I'm sure there are details as to how to make the most of that sort of activity. But before we get there, I'm actually curious what. What actually changes in the students' practice behaviors during the week when they are operating from a perspective of having reviewed their lesson and, and transcribed the important parts and so forth? Like, are there specific yeah. things that change?
1: Yeah, really. so a fantastic question. I'm glad we're going here next because I, I think that that's exactly the way to approach this. I'm going to describe this two ways from my standpoint of when I was a student and what I felt like was happening. And now I'm going to describe it from the standpoint of me teaching students who are doing this and both what I recognize in their improvement and sort of their trajectory change. And then also what they report back to me is like, what's what's working about this? So again, from like almost the most basic perspective of brutal economics of this, this is not something that all students are doing yet. Far from it. Depending on the level folks are at, this kind of working practice, I think has percolated pretty widely. But then the further down the chain you go, you know, when I encounter college freshmen, for instance, a lot of the time this is very, very new to them. And it it just hasn't occurred to them yet that this is a thing. And so one of the things I try to say to kind of get them on board with this idea and also encourage them to continue doing this through the rest of their education is just to say, look, you pay X dollars per year for tuition at whatever school you're at. Multiply that by four. That is what you're going to pay for your undergraduate education. Cool. Your undergraduate education is going to include only 120 hours of lesson time. Like that that's it. That, that's, that's the standard everywhere. It's usually like 15 lesson hours per semester, two semesters a year, boom, you get to 120 hours. And, and that's it. And after that, like that, that is what you are going to be able to get from your teacher. When people start thinking about it that way, they're like, oh wow. Okay, that's actually it, you know, it's easy to think when you're 18 years old, like, oh, this is gonna stretch on forever and I have all this infinite time. And in fact, like God, it goes by so quickly and you get to the end of it and then you're like, oh, but wait, what about in this thing? And God, maybe we talked about this, but I kind of forgot to write it down or whatever. So so I'm like at at a minimum place, like you're paying so much per hour for that lesson time, like extract that value, make make sure that you get as much out of it as you can. And so how you do that, that's now the specific thing that like, what does that look like? I'm going to describe that. And then i'm going to describe what it felt like for me and then what what i kind of witness now in my students to begin with it is recording the whole thing with at least audio and having a higher quality audio method to do this is really helpful for me i found that like the zoom recorders something like the h4 the h4n those have mics that are surprisingly good at recording timpani uh, timpani is notoriously difficult to record in any capacity and so i kind of found after the fact these were able to reproduce with reasonable fidelity what was actually happening in the playing so that i could hear a lot of those details recording with an iphone is certainly better than nothing recording with an entire like 10 grand mic setup and a mixing board now that's maybe a little overkill and you know you're going to waste a lot of time in the setup so somewhere in between one of these like handheld digital recorders is great i think if you can do video even better. A lot of my students set up the video so that it's looking at the drums and it can see them responding and doing all of the stuff that I'm, I'm telling them to do. And then it can also catch when I'm going in to demonstrate something myself. I think that can be really, really helpful. I think there's probably a, a sort of curve with this where like a lot of teachers will be comfortable with audio recording and then a subset of them will be comfortable with video too. Again, you know, making predictions is always difficult, but it does seem to me that, like, we are headed toward a place where recording lessons will become pretty standard practice, at least audio and probably video, too. And so the starting point is just getting that happening, right? Having the gear. And sometimes I I encounter pushback from students like, oh, well, you know. It's like these recorders are really expensive, and it's like, it's like I don't want to spend another three or three hundred fifty dollars on this. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I get it. Like you're a student, you don't have a ton of money, but like, let's think about priorities here, right? Like you're you're dropping fifteen or twenty or forty or sixty grand on school this year, and you have a way that you could you know extract 500% more value from that and you're just like leaving it literally on the table like it's not being turned on you're not going to buy the device like y- you know we we pay money for our instruments we buy new strings we do all of this stuff because it's obviously something we have to do as part of our craft and i would argue this is no different so you know for any of my students the the purchase of one of these devices that is enabling this is just a non-negotiable thing and so From that point, then, for anyone who wants to reference this out after the fact, I kind of wrote out this process flow in this blog post I have called No One Gets There On Their Own. I basically say step one is the capturing, right? You just have to record it. You have to have the device. You have to record it. It's worth noting that the law on this varies state by state. So uh, categorically, I believe everybody needs to ask the permission of their teacher. And like I said before, the teacher should then consent and say, yes, this is okay, it turns out that, oddly enough, there are states which have this law called single-party consent, which essentially means that you can record what's going on around you, and that's legal to do. And actually, New York State is one of those states. And if, if anyone listening to this is better versed in this law than I am, please feel free to write in and, and correct my understanding of this. But nevertheless, from an ethical perspective, you really need to get the permission And also note that there are some states where if you just turn on the recorder in the middle of this and your teacher finds out later and they did not give their consent, that's actually illegal, potentially, what you were doing. So make sure you get permission, turn the thing on, boom. The step beyond that then is the lesson is over and what do you do from there? Or I guess maybe I should say step 1.5 in between is does this and should it change the way you do a lesson? And kind of as I was alluding to earlier, I think yes, it, it does. So once I started recording my lessons, I stopped trying to take notes during the lesson. This might sound counterintuitive to people. It's not it's not a hard and fast rule. I mean, if there was something really critical I wanted to like go back and mark in my part or something, or you know, I would put like a little asterisk or maybe have a little post-it note. But it was it was just a reminder for later that I'm gonna spend more time digging into this later. Because again, the idea was during that incredibly valuable lesson time, which is, you know, it's probably helpful to put a number on this, right? Like, I mean, a lot of people's lesson rates that I know in New York City is like $150 an hour for a lesson. There are parts of the country where that probably sounds insanely high, but this is the going rate in New York. But that's for like private individual lessons. If you work at the same rate for what you're effectively paying in an institution, because of all the overhead and everything else and classes and everything you know that that hourly lesson rate quickly becomes 250 300 500 in some places it's as high as like six or seven hundred dollars an hour and so again my thinking is like i want every cent of that to count and so during that lesson i need to be as fully engaged and responsive as possible and that's tough to do when you're sitting there constantly like Scribbling something down and then missing the next thing they're saying or you know, you put down the instrument and in you're writing and they're like, no, 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 do it again. I told you to do it again. like whatever it is, right? And so the, the step 1.5 is like, don't so much worry about writing. You're going to be able to do that later. Focus on being fully present, engaged, responsive, adaptive, and like truly listening as much as possible to everything they're saying. Because at the end of the day, part of this is just about efficiency. Given 120 lesson hours in undergrad, how much are you going to be able to learn? How far are you going to be able to go? What kind of trajectory are you going to be able to set? So, then step two for me was go back and listen to the whole thing. But that's not all. The really important thing I started doing for myself was to generate a written transcript, sort of like a court reporter. And I would listen back from the beginning. And kind of generate this moment by moment accounting of like what was going on, what we were talking about. And one of the really important things about this is it creates a searchable record that for me was just invaluable for the future. Pro tip for anyone that's going to do this, I found it was really effective to use software like Audacity for this process because you've got all these abilities to, you know, put in timestamps and like little markers and you can jump between spots. And if, you know, you get to minute 40 of the lesson and your teacher says, Hey, yes. Remember at the beginning when we talked about this, okay, do this, this, and this now. And during the lesson, you were like, uh, wait, wait, what? But now later you can jump back to that point and be like, Oh yeah, that is what we were talking about. Okay. Going through that, writing the transcript, this takes time, obviously, right? Like for, for a given lesson hour, I would sometimes spend two, three, even four hours in this transcription process, which seems onerous to people. And this is kind of one of the other areas of pushback I encounter where they're just like, yeah, well, but that's going to cut into my practice time. And I say, no, absolutely not. If that is the way you're thinking about this, I think you're, you're managing your time poorly or inefficiently because- the way I was doing this was essentially structuring my schedule and my life and everything so that I would go basically push my practice hours to the biochemical maximum, which um, I know you've written about, Noah, and I know like a lot of other people have studied this. That across many, many fields, there is this growing recognition that like four to five hours of intense focus concentration is about as much as we can realistically expect in any given day. And that after that, we require sleep and rest and rejuvenation to both, uh, you know, at a neurological level, we're, we're getting rid of this beta amyloid protein that, that builds up and kind of inhibits our cognitive capacity. We are replenishing our stores of myelin where all of these things are happening just at a cellular level that enables us to learn more effectively. So, yeah, my priority was maximize that time. But still, that's only... 28 or 30 or 35 hours a week, you've got a lot of other time (laughs) that you can and should be using to reinforce and support and augment all of your in the practice room efforts. And so for me, this transcription time was key in that part of the supporting time. And just like my previous analogy about canoeing, if you're not doing that, then these other practice hours you're putting in are potentially ineffective or taking you off course or, or something. And so it's, it's just really, really essential to, to make time for that.
0: Do you do that as like the first thing after your lesson, before you dive into the rest of your practice week? Um, the other thing is, do you do the, the transcription all in one sitting, or do you kind of spread it out just for endurance purposes or just keeping your mind fresh, or maybe it doesn't matter so much, but.
1: um, g- Generally, Yes, I do it right away after. And generally, yes, I try to do it all in one sitting. But th- so there's an asterisk there that, that relates to my step three, because my step three is to basically go back and review your own review, which is to like, look at the transcript you generated or just sort of sit there and think about like, okay, what, what is the totality of what we covered in this lesson? And then go back and zoom in again on some of these really critical parts. Like if if there was a major breakthrough moment or there was something that you didn't understand the first time or your teacher used a word that you'd never heard before. Or like maybe you're doing Mahler and there's like a German term and it just goes right by you and you're like, oh, what does – right and you're like, ah, okay. And then you have a chance to Google it and then you go back and you're like, ah, right. So so the refocusing and kind of re-reviewing in like micro detail some of these spots I think is really – important. And for that, I think, yeah, don't be afraid to reapproach that a day or two later or even a week later. Or I would find myself going back to some of these archives that I created months and even years later because there was something I was like, oh, wait a minute. I remember in this one lesson, my teacher said this and I still didn't quite get it, but now I do. Hold on, let me go read my notes. Oh, and then I, then I'd actually go back and re-listen to the thing. And I'm like, cha-ching, like light bulbs go off. I'm like, oh, finally. Okay, cool. So yes, in general, listen back right away. And then also keep going back for kind of repeated uh, sessions after that as context would dictate. And then on that point, my step four is organizing all of this. In different places, I have sort of alluded to the recording system I set up for myself. For anyone who's listening to this and and trying to find my write-up of this on my website or something, I apologize. I haven't gotten to that yet. (laughs) It doesn't exist. I hope it will soon. But the short version is that I had this pretty comprehensive playlist system in iTunes where I had all of the self-recordings of my own practicing, of excerpts, of lessons, and, and all of this stuff lived in there. And then I annotated it extensively in the metadata, which is to say the title of the track, the comment section, but specifically like the lyrics tab in iTunes. And I would sort of like write little journal entries in there. And to be clear, I'm I'm not at all saying that this is the only or even the best way to do this. It's just kind of the way that I fell into and then kind of became my routine. But I would say the, the salient feature of this is that I would generate all of these lesson transcripts, and they would typically live in this one big document, which again has the advantage of searchability. Back in the day, I started with a Word document because Google Docs didn't exist yet. Today, I would start with a Google document. And it's not a problem. In fact, it's great if this thing ends up being like several hundred pages long because... That's a lot of good information you've got in there. And with a quick command F, you can find any searchable term that you were going over with your teacher. That's an incredibly valuable resource. The next step that I took it to was synthesizing individual pieces of that into new stories, which is to say, when we start to go over Beethoven 9, first movement, coda, timpani excerpt again, I'm like, aha, okay, cool. This next five minutes of my lesson transcript, I'm going to copy and paste this part of it into my Beethoven 9 timpani excerpt specific thing in my other archive. So that then I had a topical way to consolidate all of the information I'd been working on with respect to this excerpt over three or four or six years even. And for me, that became an incredibly valuable resource because I was able to then go back after the fact and see like, okay, four years ago, I did this on it in a lesson. And then three years ago, I played it in this audition and got this feedback. Last year, I did this other lesson where they said this, and it was obviously at a higher level. So now I'm working on this, this, and this thing. And it was just a way to give myself essentially the, the, the sort of comprehensive history of my development on each topical thing I was working on. I think for music performance, because our auditions deal with excerpts, the excerpt itself is a very useful metric and way to divide this and, and kind of organize and categorize it. But certainly I would also have more general ways to divide this out because it could just be topical according to a certain technique, a certain style of playing. Maybe it's on string instruments, it's it's shifting or it's, you know, okay, and here's all, the, here's all my notes on all the different lessons where we talked about spiccato or here's my document where i've i've copied and pasted out all the different times we talked about breath support and and how to use my diaphragm I and mean, you know the sky's the limit here right so you can you can use your own judgment and creativity for how you want to kind of mine continual additional value out of this but obviously the starting point is record it and have this this transcribed record to begin with it's sort of the living story of all of your work the sort of steps in my process beyond there were essentially a sort of diagnosis, right? Which is when you honestly go through the initial steps of this, which is like transcribing and and listening back and then starting to write it out, just that alone, I think can result in some pretty radical changes in terms of how you're practicing and perceiving your own playing. It absolutely did for me. Right. So, again, my experience of this when I started doing this as a student was I went into this with a certain idea of how I sounded and how I was playing and like what the issues were. And then actually listening back to these lessons in sort of gory detail, you know, I ended up with a more realistic picture of what was going on and how I was sounding. And to be clear, that's not always pleasant because we're human beings with egos and and emotions and we like to think that we're awesome and doing everything great and a lot of times these recordings reveal like oh well you know not not quite like there's there's another part of this that you still have to be working on but i would argue that that is exactly what should be happening then because it kind of allows you to cut through the bs and focus on the issues that are really important and the more self-directed you become as a student which is what has to happen to everybody, right? Because as an undergrad, you're still following the direction of your teacher mostly. And then maybe you go get a master's degree and you're more self-directed, but you're still kind of relying on your teacher to chart the course. And then you graduate, you're on your own. And like now you're entirely self-directed. And if you can arrive at that place already being very comfortable with being realistic about your own issues and this kind of process of self-diagnosis, and coming up with your own kind of reality-based focus task list of the things that you need to be working on, man, it's it's going to be a whole lot easier. And for me, again, this was sort of the meta-diagnosis process of like listening to the whole lesson or thinking about the last five lessons and then stepping back and saying, you know, okay, I've, I've had all of this feedback. I've evaluated this stuff. I'm starting to notice these themes or these, these persistent issues or kind of big picture things. In one way, it helped me get away from, I think, what is so common in lessons, which is just kind of having a bunch of like phenomena get diagnosed. You know what I mean? And like, and for me as a teacher, that's also one of the things that's kind of the least satisfying. Which is like if a student comes in and plays a bunch of stuff and it's like, okay, that's rushing, that's sharp, that's flat, that's not the right notes. Okay, you're crunching these rhythms. Like all of that, that's like phenomena diagnosing. That's, and frankly to me at this point, that's kind of boring. And that's the kind of stuff that I wish students could be doing on their own ahead of time. From my teaching perspective, I'm like, bring me problems to solve. Let's not spend the time on diagnosis. Let's spend the time on, Okay a student comes in and they're like, Jason, I've I've been practicing, you know, I I spent like 35 hours doing this. I noticed and I diagnosed X, Y, and Z. And and these things are still happening. And I don't know why. Can we problem solve this to figure out like how do I need to practice this to really address this? That kind of insight comes out of both a good rigorous practice process, but also specifically like listening to these lessons and noticing how much of the time is being spent on easy low level diagnosis versus like actually valuable problem solving. And then again, so, so my final step on this is then kind of like working up to bigger and bigger picture things, this kind of synthesis, moving all this information around into my different like lists and archives and trying to craft for myself this overall bigger picture plan of like, okay, I've got all these things I need to work on this. Here's my top you know, five or 10 priorities I'm working on. And, Doing that then just increases the efficiency and and benefit of all of the lessons that came after.
0: This is interesting, this idea of diagnosing problems versus the problem-solving aspect of things. Because the other question that I was going to ask you is, and it might be difficult to reflect on it because it's hard for us to know what has changed in our own behavior sometimes. But aside from changes in students' practice behaviors, I was wondering what over time this would do in terms of changes to the teacher's teaching behavior. So as just an example of a maybe slightly related thing, I remember reading some research somewhere which suggested that if someone comes to you for advice and they come with a pad of paper and pen, even if they don't write anything down, the people giving advice were more likely to give a greater number of, of tips or they gave more advice. I don't remember if the advice was of higher quality, but they gave a greater volume of advice than when the person seeking advice had nothing on which to write uh, <laughs> the advice that they were about to present. And so I wondered, you know, if, if the teacher knows that this is being recorded and the student clearly visibly is no longer trying to take notes, but simply like flagging important moments to come back to later and seems more engaged. Do you have a sense of whether maybe there might be some changes even in the teacher's behavior in a positive direction or a more
1: Oh, productive hundred percent. Yes. Yes. And so, okay, This we're sort of circling back to one of the things we started with, which is like, you have to get buy-in to begin with, with the recording. And again, I think most responsible ethical teachers are allowing this now. When I've had some conversations with people that don't like doing this, there's a handful of sort of rationales that they throw up there, and then some that they don't. And somewhere I'm kind of like reading between the lines to extract, like, what is the the nature of this opposition? I think one of the elements is exactly the point you're making. And it's I, I want to find the most generous way to say this, because I don't think in most cases this arises with any sort of malicious intent. But... The reality is it is a whole lot easier to teach the kind of lessons I'm describing where it's simple diagnosis, right? I mean, you can be sleep deprived, you could be dramatically hung over, you know, and like your student can come in and play some stuff and you're just like, uh, yeah, rushing, dragging, flat, sharp, okay, see you next week. And it like it requires very little effort on your part, little engagement, you know, like you can get through that easy. And so just as sort of, like, the reality that water finds the easiest path down to ground, like, I think there's this this sort of almost physics of how, like, teaching can go where, like, the path of least resistance is, okay, we'll just default to the easiest kind of teaching possible. And, and again, that, that can easily happen. I don't think it's malicious, but it's not great, right? And I, you know, I was always... Pretty wary of that when I was a student, and if it started to go that direction, I was like, uh, "No, no, hold on! Like, look, can we elevate the level here?" I think the flip side of that is that you know, for me as a teacher now, uh, I I get so bored teaching that kind of lesson; like, it's just not interesting to me, and so I, I want it to be at that other level. But yeah, the reality is, it it requires more from me. It takes a lot more of my mental engagement and energy and problem solving and all of this. But at the end of the day, like without a doubt, the value that the student is getting out of that is so much higher. Because I think, yes, I am getting better information to them. And I mean, right, like just about anybody you talk to will say that when they start teaching, it makes them a better player too. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think part of it is because... It forces you to go in and reconsider all of the stuff you've been doing and why. And if you get into a lesson mode where it's, you know, instead of just simple diagnostic stuff, but rather problem solving, it is is forcing you to cover all of the terrain of your own experience and your playing and your philosophy and, and everything you're doing and really suss that out with the sort of why involved. It relates back to one of the things I talk about in the same blog post I referenced The uh, no one gets there on their own is one of my litmus tests when I was choosing my teachers, which again, was this like super cocky thing I got to do because I wasn't fixed with any one school. Like I wasn't, I wasn't enrolled as a student, so I could kind of go and study with who I wanted to. And, you know, my process of figuring out like, is this a teacher I want to work with for the long time, you know, for a, a longer term? Obviously, I wanted them to be interested in working with me, but beyond that, I would ask them questions during the lesson, which is like, you know, they'd show me something or they'd play something cool, and I'd be like, wow, oh, that was really neat. Like, why did you do that? Or why did you approach it that way? And the why question always goes to this place of like, interesting problem solving versus just basic diagnostics. If the response from the teacher was something like, Oh, well, because that's just how it's done. Or, well, that's what my teacher told me to do. And I couldn't get to the why. I was like, okay, cool. Fair enough. Um, this is not going to be what I need or what interests me as a student and not the way I like to think about this or music or anything. But, but that was a way to get to that kind of what I think is much higher quality, valuable information. And so that idea that like, yeah, just simply getting out the notepad provokes people into that way of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you better. I think, and it so I, I think I have to mention this other side of it, which is still this, the resistance that people will have to being recorded during lessons. I think there is a place again, where I, I don't think this is necessarily malicious, but people, when people realize they're on the record, they get scared because they're like, oh, oh no, well, wait, you're actually going to, You're actually going to write this down? Oh, no, I might be accountable for what I say. Right? And the reality is, like, you always are. But it's just the recorder makes it more concrete. And I think for some of the teachers that I've talked with about this, what they're really saying is, oh, crap, I don't want the recorder to be on because I don't want it to be a a part of the record if I say something really stupid which again me sort of reading between the lines and and trying to suss out what they're saying is i haven't actually given that this much thought right i i i've i've been teaching a certain thing for a long time and this is just what i do but i'm not sure i'm able to you know justify it or provide a rationale or something where i'm just not going to sound like an ass at when i'm talking about it in a lesson and and i understand that and i get that fear but i think again from from a sort of like perspective of ethical pedagogy it's like well suck it up and do better <laughs> you know what i mean like that uh, that just points to like what you're not giving your students that maybe you should be uh, on sort of the darkest side of this i think there are mm, there are teachers out there and i'm obviously not going to name any names here but there are teachers out there where you know their teaching style might be <clears throat> um not pc not um, respectful, maybe bordering on lewd, maybe bordering on wildly inappropriate. I think the number of stories we have now in this sort of post-Me Too era about how those teacher-student relationships in music can go incredibly badly, um, I think about what would have happened in those cases in the alternate reality where all of those lessons were being recorded as a matter of institutional policy. I, I think it, it, you know, there's a lot of good reasons for doing this and for proceeding with lessons this way. But I think there's also this sort of like um you know, almost prophylactic type reason from an institutional level, and frankly, just from like individual like legal liability, where you should want this. Like as a teacher, you should want this record to exist to prove your innocence. <laughs> like should anything ever go down in the future. So, yeah, I I just I think there's there's a whole lot of different ways that this can change the actual process of the lesson itself. You know, it it makes me think of the the basic um, principle in quantum mechanics where like you can't observe the thing without changing it. It's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I think that's kind of true from a lesson perspective, but I think it's advantageous. And I think it's it's a good thing that the. The measurement and the recording and everything changes the lesson in a overwhelmingly positive way
0: it's interesting because it seems to i mean at least in my head it brings up a few things that some of which might be a little bit subtle but maybe some of which are are less so and i think you would agree in all fairness i think there's some teachers who are teaching so much you know 40 hours a week maybe even 50 60 in some cases that yeah it can be exhausting i imagine like you said to be in this intense sort of engaged problem-solving mode minute after minute after minute with one student after another. And and I wonder too if maybe it also to some degree depends on the level of the student or where the student's at and what they need, because in terms of cultivating one's ability to hear different things and have a clear concept of what they want, and it might be that at some points... Maybe the diagnostic approach and just kind of calling out, oh, did you notice you're rushing or did you notice this was happening or that was happening? Maybe that's an important part of what they need to get. And hopefully, yes, it's happening in the recording process as they go back and listen and so forth. But that was one thing that kind of occurred to me. On on the other hand, I really like this idea of if the student and teacher engaged in the lesson in an extended problem-solving process of, well, let's try this. It's like, no, that wasn't quite it yet. What if you adjust this one little thing? Oh, wait, that got us further away. What if you go back to this other thing you're doing and you try this too? Like, I would imagine that would give the student an opportunity to see their teacher's problem-solving process at work, which then perhaps could be generalized to their own problem-solving process during the week. And well, maybe we'll go there. There's one other thing that came up too, but, but what are your thoughts about those sorts of aspects of this from the teacher's behavior. Yeah, I think you're
1: right on. And there's a a lot to unpack in there, I think. But yes, I think one of the things maybe we haven't explicitly stated yet is that the kinds of things I was trying to learn from my teachers was not just replicating what they do, but learning their problem-solving process, right? And I should say that for me, this was a more comfortable and familiar territory because in the sciences this is often the relationship you try to cultivate with your advisor if you're if you're like doing phd research like it it doesn't make sense to replicate what they did that's not what science is about you have to go out and do something new and and do new experiments and new research and you're doing that under the guidance of somebody who knows how to think and so what you're trying to learn from them is how do you think about this how how do you problem solve and so you know for me that's kind of like the gold standard of this teacher student relationship and it was it was again it was something i was familiar and comfortable with translating it into a you know music performance context i realized that that is not the experience that a lot of instrumental musicians will have but i do think that is ultimately what you're trying to go for um now uh, backing up from that for a second to your point about you know that sometimes yeah you just need the diagnostics if you if you are not hearing it yourself or not not aware yet, um, yes, a hundred percent, right? that's that's certainly true. But I sort of think about that the same way I think about like learning the notes. You know what I mean? And like, I'll have conversations with students sometimes. Uh, you know, <laughs> I actually again, I'm not going to name any names, but I just came from a master class where, like a student got up there and played, and it was like clearly unprepared, like clearly had not done any of the kind of homework before this class and, and they weren't really ready to do this at the level. And they, they started playing and it was, it was obvious they had like barely listened to this. And, and, you know, so that student was kind of trying to wheeze a lot of it being like, yeah, you know, I, uh, yeah, I didn't have a ton of time this week, but what I'm really interested in is like, what's your process of learning a new excerpt. And I just kind of wanted to throw my sticks out and be like, Dude, Oh my God. Like, Okay. I can talk about this, but let's be real. Like timpani excerpts are not hard to play, right? There's like, it's, it's like two notes a lot of the time. It's like five and one and it's eighth notes and sixteenth notes. It, like learning it is like the first 0.2% of your experience with this material. Like you learn the thing, you know how it basically goes. And then everything after that is like infinite levels of refinement. And And so I sort of think about that the same way with like, The diagnostic approach, which is like, yes, early on, if you have not been recording yourself extensively, if you haven't had a lot of teachers that work with you that set these expectations, there's going to be this like break in period where you're like, oh, yeah, crap. I didn't realize that I was consistently sharp here or that I always play this one note with this bad tone or something. But then that's going to get pointed out to you. And then pretty much after that point, you're like responsible for the problem solving part now. And if it just continues being diagnostics after that, you're still like living and dwelling in that first, you know, fractional percentage of the work that's going to kind of like hamstring all of your future efforts. Because again, like all of this stuff, it is available to you. If you're sitting there in the practice room and recording yourself, all it should take is one or two times of somebody pointing out this is happening. Then you listen back to that part of the transcript. You're like, oh, crap, that's happening. And then you listen back to your own practice in between in these 7, 14, 28 hours, and you're like, yup, still happening. So That's it another, just,
0: it, that's another it, interesting thing that occurred to me too, because if you're not recording and a teacher points out, oh, you're rushing here, or this is sharp, or whatever, it just happened. It's in the past. You can't reflect back and accurately hear what just happened five seconds ago. Whereas if it's recorded... Maybe you don't hear it when you listen back the first time, but your teacher noticed it was there. You trust them. And so you keep listening back to the recording until you can hear the subtleties. Of, oh, yeah, you're right. That note was a little bit early or that note is a little bit this, that, or the other thing. Um, so it seems almost like integrating recording into not just your practice process, but the, the lesson process would hopefully accelerate the process of cultivating your ability to pick up on tiny nuances in your own playing.
1: Undoubtedly. And actually, you know, so connecting this back to something that I, I think you and I talked about in the previous podcast, we can take this a step further to say I recorded my auditions too, and I used that as a learning tool. And there was a there was a lesson I learned from that, just like a big picture lesson, which was that when I first started doing it, it revealed to me that my perception was diverging from reality in some really big, uncomfortable ways. And the way I kind of quantified that was I would go in and I would play my round in prelims. And again, early on, I was getting cut all the time. (laughs) That was just like what was happening. So I'd play the round and I'd I'd walk off stage. I'd be carrying my stick case. I'd get back to the green room. And the first thing I would do is sit down and write in my little practice journal, my chronological account of what I thought had just happened. And I was doing this. And I mean, this this points to some like actual performance, uh, psychology type ideas, but like I was doing this so that during the round, as I was playing, I was trying not to think just clear minded executing awareness. So I was aware of what was going on, but I was not like inner monologue critiquing and being like, Oh God, Oh no. Ugh. It was just awareness. It was like, it was like, I had this almost little video audio camera in my brain that was just like buffering into this place and the buffer was filling up. And then I left the stage went back to the green room, and then emptied the buffer into my journal. It's like, what did I think just happened there? Okay, so now I've got this little chronological accounting. And later that afternoon, you know, after I've been cut or something, and I'm back in my hotel room, now I listen to my round. And I compare the reality of my transcript that I'm writing now, fresh and new, with this thing that I'm listening to. And I compare that to my initial written impression and good God, like the first few times I was doing that, it was really uncomfortable because I walked out of there thinking what I just got caught. Come on. I played great. I thought that was awesome. And this went well and this went well. And, it, and then I heard the playback and I was like, Oh, Oh no. Oh shoot. <laughs> oh, Oh jeez! Like, this is not what I thought it was, but over time. And I mean, like, the course of maybe twelve or eighteen months, and like a handful of times doing this, these things started to really converge. So that it, by the end of this, I got to the point where I was still recording the audition, just as a matter of practice. But I, I actually, I probably didn't need to because my awareness was now so closely matching reality. But that kind of only came from that painful process of confronting what I thought it was and and dealing with that and the larger point with this i think is that in micro that canon should be happening like in your daily practice all of the time as a result of that thing you identified which is you have that moment with your teacher it comes and goes and it's gone and now it's in the past and it's tough to reflect on that and problem solve unless you can and unless you have a recorded thing to go back to and reference
0: which essentially is another way of i think you've said ensuring that your teacher's guidance or your teacher's priorities for you at that moment in your development continue on through the week with you instead of you kind of going off in some other direction and losing track of all the things that your teacher is trying to get you to work on?
1: So me being me, I'm going to make my requisite Star Wars reference now, because in my mind, recording your lessons and generating this transcript is like enabling the Force ghosts, right? So like, lacking this, you're never going to hear Obi-Wan be like, Luke, Dagobah, and you're never going to hear Yoda being like, we are what we grew up, you know, like the whole thing, like you're not going to have that ongoing kind of wisdom or, you know, redirection in your efforts. It's just going to be in the past and gone and kind of relying on your memory, which is going to be incomplete and faulty. And so in engaging in this process that in, in my blog post, I just called deliberate lessons is sort of like activating the force ghost feature so that they, they can kind of still be with the, with you, kind of continuously advising and, and guiding.
0: Yeah you know, there's one other thing that I I wondered and I don't know if you've had this experience or not but in theory I'm wondering because in Zoom we can't hear all the details and a students playing nearly as well as we could in in real life it's I would imagine it's more difficult to do that diagnostic process of what's the sound quality really like over there in the person's living room where they're playing, or, you know, maybe even pitch and intonation and, and dynamics and all these details have been sort of uh, processed through zoom yeah. in such a way that we can't really spend as much time perhaps on the nuances of what we would need them to be working on. But I wonder if the, the problem solving process though, needn't be as negatively impacted by the fact that people are working remotely. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's maybe- I think that's
1: true. I, I think I think that's both true and it also suggests some alternate ways of using this technology. So, so even pre-COVID, I would do a lot of work with students around the world where they would record a sort of mock audition round with high quality mics in their studio or on a stage or something, upload that, I would listen to it, and then our online lesson time would be a conversation rehashing that thing that was enabling higher quality and enabling more nuance, right? So, so that's one way to kind of work around that. Um, that being said, I mean, yeah, clearly one of the things that people are facing right now is access to facilities, right? So not only do people not necessarily have the ability to get in and play on the recital stage so they can hear what it sounds like in the room and and teachers can hear that and be like, wow, you know, it's a really full sound, it's getting to the back row, or like, oh, it's a little bit kind of tepid and like, you know, that kind of thing is really hard to work with right now. Um, to say nothing of the fact that like, you know, all of my students are like, I can't even get to timpani. I can't get to timpani, right? My timpani are trapped at the Met and like I'm not able to play my instrument and it it's sad. But I what I do think that points to is that there is still the problem-solving process and the thinking that can be like, okay, well, for the time being, we we can't apply that type of thinking to these very nuanced variables, but we can still do it for all of this other stuff.
0: I'm thinking in my head of something like, maybe there's a passage where it just sounds a little bit sloppy because the coordination between the right and left hands isn't quite where it needs to be in So then the teacher could help with figuring out why that might be and what's going on and what adjustments might need to be made technically and so forth. I don't know. I kind of enjoy that sort of problem solving. I mean, that's when practicing became more fun for me when I started understanding deliberate practice and that it is kind of a series of puzzles to be solved and solutions that are hiding there somewhere that I just need to discover as opposed to just mindless repetition. You know, uh, it's it's funny
1: because as you're saying that, it makes me think of one of the other things you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, which was that like... Um, it's it's totally a thing where teachers themselves can get heavily scheduled, verging on overcommitted, right? So so if you are juggling a performing job like at the Met of the New York Philharmonic or something like this, and you teach at Juilliard uh or and or MSM or Madison Rucker, you know, like it is really totally possible to get a f- very full plate. And I the, the way I've thought about that is I mean, one of the core messages of the entire deliberate practice framework is quantity is important, but quality is more important. And it is more effective to spend two hours practicing really, really well than six hours practicing in an inefficient, unfocused way. And that at the end of the day, sort of the return on that investment, the dividends you will reap, choose your metaphor, like, it is going to be way more effective in the long run to prioritize quality and then build up quantity as much as you can. And from the student perspective, learning and scheduling and practicing your during the week and, and organizing your schedule, I think that reality is just pretty inarguable. I think from the teaching perspective, it equally holds, which is to say, focus on quantity first, right? Sorry, sorry. Back up, delete, <laughs> mixing up my words, focus on quality first. So this, and this is, again, I'm not, I'm not perfect at this, but what, what I'm trying to do as a teacher is make sure that I can come to each lesson with as fully activated problem solving capacity as I can, being fully engaged and able to deliver maximum value to that student. And then. I allow myself to schedule as many students in the week as I can while still maintaining that level. But if that level starts to become too compromised because I'm overscheduled or we're doing two parsifals and those are six hours long and I need time to recover from that, then I'm going to dial back my teaching load because I would rather do fewer lessons, fewer lesson hours and maintain the quality level than let that suffer.
0: It makes me think of psychology practice where basically one therapy hour is generally 50 minutes, right? The right. idea is in the 10 minute break, you'll write up notes and you'll do paperwork and, and maybe you'll get a chance to go to the bathroom. But, um, but the, <laughs> yeah, but the idea is to, right. The idea is to be able to take care of things so that you're also going to be able to give yourself a little bit of a breather and, and be effective for the next, uh, session. And, and I don't know if, I mean, I don't remember my teacher's taking breaks like i don't know when they ever ate lunch or went to the bathroom i mean i was only <laughs> right. i was only concerned about my hour yeah. and i never really considered that they have to do this hour after hour and give every student their utmost attention and and that must be exhausting and so it seems like it might be a nice way to enable teachers to you know give more of themselves for a shorter amount of time instead of feeling like they need to fill up the entire hour cuz i don't know the hour also seems a little bit Arbitrary, perhaps, in the same way that maybe oh, yeah. a forty hour work week is sort of arbitrary.
1: I, I think I think that's absolutely right. It, it is kind of arbitrary. I mean, and you know, just for what it's worth, because with timpani, there's so much like logistics and setup and everything. I've I've standardized on minimum two hour lessons. Right. So we do two hour lessons every two weeks, just because that way you're wasting less overall time getting in and grabbing the gear and moving it around and setting up you know, so it's just like that that's one of the things I try to do for the students. But but again, like I'll have students that fly in to take a lesson from somewhere halfway around the world. And in that case, for my own practice, I basically charge a flat lesson rate. And I'm just like, we're going to go for as long as we both have energy because and, and and that is a little variable. I mean, some some days it's like two hours and 45 minutes. Other days, like if I'm well rested and the student is super sharp and we're having a good time, it will basically hit that biochemical limit of like four or four and a half hours. And then we both get to a point where we're like, wow, we are spent. Holy cow. Okay. But yeah, it's just all to the point you made that like the default unit of an hour for a lesson is yeah, pretty, pretty arbitrary. And I guess, you know, maybe, maybe just kind of one other closing comment on all of this sort of summarizing everything we've, we've just talked about and, and sort of the starting point of like how I approach lessons, the concept of a deliberate lesson and, and why, at the end of the day, what, what, what Erickson and I want to be measuring in this study we're planning is retention and trajectory, which is basically to say that what I experience with my own students doing this is that they come into the next lesson so fully prepared and basically picking up where we left off which then means this next lesson can be even more effective and get higher up the mountain, which then means that the lesson after that can go more up, you know, and, and it's it's cumulative and building and exciting. There have been times where because of technical glitches or something happens, like my student will be like, oh no, my batteries died and my thing and lost it. And what's really funny then is it provides this almost like control group. So they come in the next lesson. And we're working and I'm like, dude, what, what happened? Like, we've been over this, like, come on. And in, and like, I get used to people being so responsive and retaining. Right. And, and then they're like, oh no, don't you remember? That was the lesson where my, my thing died and I wasn't able to do the transcript. And I was like, oh no, you're right. Okay. I'm sorry. But the net effect of this is that like in group a, they're, they're doing all the stuff. And my, my, my rough estimate is that, When you don't record a lesson, you retain 15 to 20% of what actually goes on in that lesson. When you do record, I think you get to retain 80 to 90% or more. And so the analogy is essentially that, you know, the group that's recording, they like hike a mile up the mountain and maybe like take a little wrong turn or backslide. But at the end of the day, they've basically gone like four fifths of a mile. And the control group that you know the, the thing broke, or they're not recording to begin with. They like hike up the mountain, but then they take a wrong turn, and then they fall, and then something happens, and then there's a storm, and they end up, and they're only like a fifth of a mile in. And then you come to the lesson the next week, and they're and I'm like, cool. So did you get to this mile marker yet? And they're like, nah, I'm still back here. And we're like, okay. And and that's what I mean by the the trajectory thing, and because I think at the end of the day, like that that is really such a defining aspect of what happens throughout our music performance really really the anything career is just like you know how how far are you getting in a certain amount of time we're, we're all dealing with linear time in the same quantity and the the people that tend to do well with this are the ones that are able to kind of maximize that growth in that fixed amount of time
0: for a full transcript of this episode plus links to random interesting things that came up in conversation as well as resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet. Please visit bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.